5: Longshot is a production of McClatchy Studios and iHeartRadio.
6: Welcome to part six of Payback. I'm executive producer Davin Coburn. A listener note in this episode, you'll hear quotes from former North Carolina Courage head coach Paul Riley. In late 2021, former players of his alleged that Riley committed gross misconduct in the women's game, including sexual coercion and emotional abuse. This episode includes descriptions of those allegations. Prior to those players speaking out, Jessica McDonald told our reporting team that Riley was a key figure in her professional development. So we spoke with Riley about McDonald as a team leader well before the allegations against him came to light. For months after those allegations were made, Riley did not respond to our attempts to interview him again. Recently, though, we did hear from him. So we've updated this episode to include Riley's first public comments since those allegations. Following those allegations, we also spoke with McDonald again. And in this episode, she'll share for the first time her experiences playing for Riley. And now, back to your host, Alex Andreev, and Payback, part six.
5: Previously on Payback.
7: I got my first start and within minutes, probably the most devastating moment of my entire life.
2: When she came to me, I was looking at her going, holy cow, we've got an uphill battle here. It's not uncommon to come back, but it's uncommon to come back as good or better than you were.
7: Right now I'm pregnant with my son. Like, I'm gonna be responsible for a whole other human being. Oh, dear God.
2: There's the nail in the coffin. All right, you're a mom now. It's over. There's no way.
8: This might be hard physically, but it's just as hard, I think, on all moms that are working.
7: I didn't want to use my child as an excuse to not pursue the dreams that I had for myself.
1: Welcome live to an historic night for women's soccer. It's the inaugural match of the NWSL.
5: By the middle of 2013, women's soccer would once again be finding a foothold in the American consciousness.
1: That is it. That's a really quality 90 minutes.
5: But in order to reflect on everything the sport has become, we have to jump ahead here for a moment. Because what became clear during our reporting for this podcast is that while unequal pay is a fundamental component of gender inequality, there are other, far more traumatic ones as well. And we saw how a game perpetually scrambling to avoid dissolution became a breeding ground for predators.
8: The National Women's Soccer League has suspended all of its weekend matches amid allegations of abuse, including sexual abuse of players by former coaches.
5: In the last year, explosive reports in The Athletic and The Washington Post involving male coaches, their women's players, and those responsible for protecting them, prompted reevaluation of influential figures at all levels of the women's game. As North Carolina once again found itself at the center of the women's soccer world,
8: The National Women's Soccer League
5: faces a reckoning over charges that it ignored abuse of its players. Professional women's soccer is turned upside down after a shocking report that... Two women claim that their former coach, his name is Paul Riley, abused them verbally and sexually.
1: The players' union demanding an end to what it calls systemic abuse plaguing the NWSL.
9: The commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League has stepped down following... Players from both teams, arm in arm, in the middle of the field, you can feel... The weight of this moment
5: for the players.
7: Man, y'all are the first people I'm talking about this with. But, you know, I have to talk about it eventually.
5: From the Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio, this is Payback. I'm Alex Andreev, and this is Part 6, Hanging by a Thread.
8: the
7: closest season ever in the Westfield W League, culminated in a grand final between Melbourne Victory and Sydney FC. In
5: 2012, as Jessica McDonald made a name for herself in Australia,
1: It's a classic! Off the post, Melbourne celebrates!
5: The U.S. women's national team once again proclaimed their own dominance abroad. They roared through their Olympic qualifying tournament, winning all five games by a combined score of 38 to nothing the U.S. women's team would head to London for the 2012 Olympic Games, looking for their third consecutive Olympic golds. But back at home, the outlook for women's soccer in the U.S. was not as encouraging. After a bruising three-year run, the Women's Professional Soccer League officially folded. Or maybe more accurately, imploded.
8: I remember the first Women's World Cup in 91, and so WSA launching was a big deal the first women's league, and I knew the moment it launched, that's what I wanted
5: to do. Megan Burke has been a true journeywoman in American soccer. A star goalkeeper for St. Louis University in the early 2000s, Burke made history at the school as the first woman ever drafted by a pro sports league when she was selected by the Carolina Courage of the WUSA. That was the first attempt at a paid U.S. pro women's soccer league. Then once the WUSA folded in 2003... Burke got another shot at professional soccer when WPS launched. But that second league also came crashing down, and with it went Burke's playing career.
8: When I think back to that moment, I remember the sound of like a record screeching, just like, like, it just felt like, what? What do you, what do you mean it's over? I don't even understand.
5: Burke's story is important here for a few reasons. For one, she actually played with Jess McDonald in WPS during Jess's first stint with the Chicago Red Stars. Burke saw the promise Jess brought to the game before that knee injury derailed Jess's career.
8: She just was someone who, as a player, you notice on the field. There was some magic sauce that she had, you know, just light.
5: Another reason Burke's story is important is that, like most women soccer players in the United States, Burke never quite made the U.S. women's national team. Her soccer paychecks came exclusively from club teams. That meant her livelihood was directly tied to the sustainability of a women's pro league which was completely outside of her control.
8: Let's see, I coached, I I can't even remember all the jobs.
5: In the years between the WUSA and WPS here in the US, Burke told me she took odd jobs while playing wherever she could, oftentimes overseas, just to keep her professional dreams alive.
8: I went telemarketing for three days and I was terrible at it because I just couldn't handle the rejection, I guess. Um, I was a landscaper, that was my favorite job. Oh, I was a highly unqualified gym teacher for like six months. They hired me because I was a soccer player and kids love soccer.
5: But ultimately, once the second women's league fell apart in 2012, Burke left her cleats behind and pursued a career in law. That's been a common story for so many women soccer players over the past few decades.
8: My last game I played September 11th, 2010. I remember thinking that night, I could do this forever. And yet that was my last game. I don't like calling it retiring. It is so deep in my blood that like, I think I will always be a soccer player. But I finally just was like, I'm tired of the bullshit. It was like, I have my dignity, I'm capable of a lot, and I don't need to be treated this way.
5: In a key way, the collapse of WPS was similar to the downfall of its predecessor, the WUSA. Neither had any financial backing from the U.S. Soccer Federation. Despite U.S. Soccer using those leagues as training grounds for the players who filled the national team rosters, the WUSA and WPS operated essentially as startups. So when fan attendance sagged and sponsors became harder to find, there was little financial margin for error. But there was one key difference between the demise of WUSA and WPS. The abuse of behavior toward women players by men in positions of power.
8: Dan Borslow lives the good life. He banked millions when he took his venture Talk.com public pre-bubble. And
5: now in late 2010, telecom magnate Dan Borslow came thundering into WPS, buying the Washington, D.C. team and relocating them to South Florida. Along the way, his bull-in-a-China-shop approach alienated WPS executives, fellow owners, and league sponsors. In 2011 the WPS Players' Union filed a grievance with the league about Borslow's treatment of his players. In that grievance, Borslow's players accused him of bullying and threatening them. Players said he berated them for what he called shitty play and called them fucking idiots. They said he called owning their team charity and that he told players to, quote, call me daddy. Megan Burke never played for Borslow, but she told me that during her time overseas, she had a similar experience with a women's Premier League team.
8: Our team was pretty good that year. So we were top of the table in the premiership and we were headed to the FA Cup semifinals like a week or two later.
5: Burke's story involved her team soliciting charity donations, much like Salvation Army bell ringers, in advance of the all-English tournament, the FA Cup. In England, that kind of fundraising is sometimes referred to as shaking buckets.
8: Our club's management, they weren't particularly fond of the women's team. They came to us and said, uh, well, you need to shake buckets to pay for your bus to London for the FA Cup semifinals or we're not paying for it. But by the way, we want you to wear shorts because that'll help you raise more money. Um, I don't remember ever being more livid (laughs) in my soccer career. And also, like, I didn't know how to channel it. You know, we all talked to each other, but we showed up, you know, we wore pants, but we did it. And it was humiliating and, and infuriating, frankly. And I didn't speak out when I was 24, you know, I, so There's a very clear need for a labor union in that context to have an advocate and someone who's looking out for you.
5: In WPS, the league publicly admonished Borslow, and then in 2011, terminated the South Florida franchise entirely. Borslow sued the league, and in the midst of the costly legal battle, the remaining team owners announced WPS would permanently suspend operations. That announcement came just months before those 2012 Olympic Games. But the U.S. women's national team didn't miss a beat in London. They defeated Japan 2-1 in the gold medal match in front of more than 80,000 fans, a new record for women's soccer at the Olympics. But by the summer of 2012, with no more league at home, it was unclear where many of those national team stars would play soccer next, or whether players like Jess McDonald could hope for any future for soccer careers in America at all. We'll be right back.
10: Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.
3: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome live to an historic night for women's soccer. It's the inaugural match of the NWSL.
5: By the spring of 2013, a new league was created, the National Women's Soccer League, bankrolled in part by the top body in American soccer.
1: That is it. That's a really quality 90 minutes.
5: The NWSL was designed to have a five-month long season, And team salary caps were only a fraction of what they had been in either of the earlier leagues. Player salaries initially ranged from about $6,000 to roughly $30,000, incomes that were totally unlivable in most cities where those teams played, according to U.S. Census Bureau data. In the Washington metro area, where one of the teams was located, the estimated median household income was roughly three times more than the league's maximum salary. Olympic medalists on that Washington team lived at a retirement community in the area other players lived with host families. But for the first time, the NWSL had the financial backing of the U.S. Soccer Federation. The national team players were allocated among the NWSL's eight teams, and U.S. Soccer paid their league salaries. So with U.S. Soccer covering the cost of the highest-paid names in the NWSL, teams could spend their remaining budgets on promising young players. Were veterans looking for a chance to prove they could still have an impact, like Jess McDonald?
7: This is in the spring of 2013 at this point coming off of the plane from Australia, and Arnhem Whistler, the owner of Chicago Red Stars, calls me literally as soon as I landed. I'm like, how did you even know my flight information? (laughs) I'm just getting back into the country.
5: Five of those NWSL teams were holdovers from the prior WPS, including the Chicago Red Stars team that had once drafted Jess. Having just led the Melbourne victory to their league finals in Australia, she was eager to be home with her young son, Jeremiah.
7: I knew that he wasn't gonna remember me being gone. It was hard some days, but that was like the thing I was holding on to. It's like, thank God for Skype and and FaceTime, you know what I mean, things like that. So that chip was on my shoulder. I couldn't do anything but try and succeed.
1: We hope you guys are set at home wherever you'll be watching the Chicago Red Stars Television
4: Network.
5: Jess signed back with the Red Stars as a free agent in 2013. She made nine appearances for the team and notched one assist, but got limited playing time and was waived from the team mid-season. But it was the start of a winding comeback that was equal parts extraordinary and extraordinarily frustrating.
7: To be honest, I had no idea what to expect. Financially, we were struggling at the beginning of the WSL and kind of hanging on by a thread. I got traded to six different teams in the first five years. That was really frustrating.
1: Some new faces on this roster, and one will be in the starting lineup tonight, playing up front, Jessica McDonald, a unique blend of size and speed.
5: Days after being waived by Chicago, she was scooped up by the Seattle rain.
1: Left-footed service in, McDonald with a shot in the goal! Jessica McDonald in her rain debut, giving Seattle the one-nil lead.
5: Just ended the year with Seattle tied for third on the team and goals scored. But after Seattle's lackluster season, in which they won only five games of 22, ownership began cleaning house.
10: I wanted to get her to Portland <laughs> when I was coaching there.
5: Here's Cindy Parlo-Cone, former national team player and UNC assistant coach with Jess's championship teams. In a stroke of fate, or perhaps more so as a sign of how small the world of U.S. women's soccer is, Parlo-Cone had become the Portland Thorns head coach for their inaugural season.
10: I knew what kind of teammate she is, and so I knew I wanted that on my team. She eventually joined the, the Portland Thorns later, which was great to see, but I didn't have the pleasure of coaching her as a pro.
5: Cone would resign from the Thorns after the 2013 season to spend more time with her family, but Portland soon made a trade to get the goal scorer from Seattle. Then, before the 2014 season, with Cone having left, Portland brought another face into the clubhouse a manager with a track record of success in the women's game named Paul Riley.
11: I've been at the women's side probably 12 years, I think, something like 12 years, 14 years, maybe a little bit longer. So I always coach men's soccer. I coach men youth, college, professionally. And then on the girls' side, I didn't do college on the girls' side and then straight to the pros. Um,
5: we spoke with Riley early in our reporting for this podcast when he was head coach of the North Carolina Courage. Riley, who is from Liverpool, played professional soccer himself until 1997. Riley broke into coaching major women's professional soccer in 2009 when the Philadelphia Independents named him head coach of their WPS franchise. He soon led that team to the WPS title game and became the league's coach of the year.
11: I mean, the speed of the game on the men's side is fabulous. The adrenaline, the strength, the power, all that stuff is great. But the tactical beauty of the women's game is something that I don't think everyone in this country yet appreciates. And I found him different. You know, I found him like, better tactically, better listeners. It was a more nurturing environment. It forced me to change my coaching philosophy. I've learned to collaborate, and I feel like women are better at collaborating than the men's side, you know? The men's side will just go out, and you'll give them tactics, and they'll just play anywhere. They'll do whatever on earth they want normally. But the women, they're brilliant, disciplined, intelligent. I think it literally, it's going to be, how you lay it out is the way it's going to be.
5: After WPS folded, Riley, too, was looking for a way back into the elite women's game. When he got the Portland job and saw that Jess was available from Seattle, it seemed like the start of something great.
8: So the Portland Thorns in front of over 14,000 of their fans in the driving rain.
5: In the Thorns' April home opener in 2014, Jess scored two goals to secure the win.
8: Jess McDonald breaking the tie with two late-game goals
1: and a huge victory for these Thorns.
5: Jess went rampaging through the NWSL that season, becoming one of the league's top scorers. Portland
1: has definitely thrown us a curveball. Instead of starting Alex Morgan, it's Christine Sinclair and Jess McDonald up top for the Thorns.
5: In this July game against Chicago, Jess had her first record-breaking moment in the NWSL.
1: We have uh, Lori Kolopny standing in the center circle and she gets us underway.
5: 33 seconds later.
1: And a quick start for the Portland Thorns in the first minute, McDonald with the goal.
5: At the time, It was the fastest goal in league history.
1: For Jess McDonald, that is her 10th goal of the campaign.
5: But despite a breakout season in which Jess led the team in scoring, Portland Center on her way. In early 2015, Jess was traded to the Houston Dash in exchange for draft picks.
8: Oh, what a pass and what a finish by Jess McDonald.
5: That 2015 season, Jess led Houston in scoring.
6: McDonald towards the near post. And she has scored! And it's 2-1 Dash!
5: But then, she was moved again. A bargaining chip in a three-team trade that landed her at the Western New York Flash. Jess was fast becoming the most underrated and perhaps undervalued player in the league.
7: I had my son, and so, you know, I'm scraping pennies. Every off-season, I was working full-time jobs, too. Our season was only six months out of the year. So what are we gonna do the next six months?
5: For any player, cross-country moves, year after year, could be maddening.
1: We hope you guys are set at home wherever you'll be watching the Chicago Red Stars television network. Welcome to Starfire Stadium, just south of Seattle, again a gorge. Portland has definitely thrown us a curveball.
6: McDonald towards the near post, and it's 2-1 down! Jess
5: had quietly married Jeremiah's father in hopes of providing a stable home for her son.
7: I was making 13K. One three. I couldn't afford childcare. I couldn't even afford a, a babysitter.
5: But that marriage quickly unraveled. By the time she was traded to the Western New York Flash in early 2016, Jess had become a trailblazer.
7: There were days where my son would be sitting in his stroller on the sideline at training by himself without you
5: know anyone watching him.
7: And that really sucked.
5: And so I guess at that point, is Jeremiah's
7: dad, like, still involved with Yeah, he FaceTimes him very frequently. Yeah. Yeah, he lives in Arizona, though, so physically, no, but I do try and get him out to Arizona as much as possible every year to spend time with him, so, yeah.
5: Even after breaking records in the NWSL, Jess hadn't been called up for a chance with the U.S. national team. She was closing in on 30 years old, when most players' best years are behind them, to say nothing of her major knee surgery or motherhood.
7: I was like, is this career even worth it anymore? National team's not happening. I am making nothing. You know, am I doing everything I can for my son?
5: Ultimately, Jess agreed to report to Rochester, thanks largely to the coach who helped guide her 2014 breakout season with the Portland Thorns, Paul Riley. Portland had chosen not to renew Riley's contract after the 2015 season, and he would be taking over for Western New York in 2016. And this is where our story takes a turn. Because late in my reporting for this podcast, soccer fans learned there's much more to Riley's arrival in Rochester, and the public saw firsthand that systemic devaluation of women in soccer, at all levels throughout the game, goes far beyond their paychecks.
8: The National Women's Soccer League faces a reckoning over charges that it ignored abuse of its players. Professional women's soccer is turned upside down after a shocking report that two women claim that their former coach, his name is Paul Riley, abused them verbally and sexually.
1: The Players Union demanding an end to what it calls systemic abuse plaguing the NWSL.
5: In an explosive report by Meg Linehan of The Athletic, two former players of Riley's on the Portland Thorns, Sinead Farrelly and Mona Shem, alleged that Riley had verbally and emotionally abused them in Portland, made sexual advances toward them, and had coerced Fairley into sleeping with him to further her career. Those players said that some of Riley's alleged abuse had gone on for years, partly because there was an unspoken belief that the NWSL was the third try at professional women's soccer in the United States. The league was seen as the last fragile hope many of them had at a career playing the game they love. If a scandal like theirs had the potential to destroy their own futures, How long would they stay silent?
7: Man, y'all are the first people I'm talking about this with. But, you know, I have to talk about it eventually.
5: Jess played on that 2014 Portland team. I spoke with her over Zoom after the news broke about Riley.
7: Paul wasn't, like, the nicest of people to me when I was there. You know, Paul was such a good coach, but, you know, a lot of his comments would be very
5: personal. Jess told me she never saw or was subjected to the sort of sexual abuse her teammates alleged in The Athletic. However, the article did mention an unnamed player mom on that 2014 team who was allegedly subjected to Riley's verbal assaults.
7: It was brutal. You know, there was a point in time where he would be like, why are you playing like craps today? Is it because your son was up all night? Comments like that. And I'm okay with getting yelled at. And that's fine as an athlete, but like when it gets personal, You know, that's a little more gut-wrenching. And so there were a lot of, like, personal comments coming at me. It was just awkward, and I felt like I was walking on eggshells when I was at Portland. But, like, this is my breakout season, too, at the same time. Everything outside of the soccer field, outside of games, it was just very uncomfortable.
5: For months after those allegations were made, Riley did not respond to our attempts to interview him again. But The Athletic ran a response from Riley, which said that over the course of his career, quote, There's a chance that I've said something along the way that offended someone. But he insisted, quote, I have never had sex with or made sexual advances towards these players. He said the majority of these allegations were, quote, completely untrue. Then, I heard from Riley himself. In his first comment since that initial report, Riley told me, quote, quote, I have a ton to say, but not ready yet. But when I do, I think it will be a forthright and honest insight into the state of women's soccer and the social, political implications of the woke culture who find a huge audience in women's soccer. End quote.
9: The coach-athlete relationship is a very special one in terms of the impact one caring relationship with a coach figure can have on an athlete.
5: Dr. Nicole Lavoy is the director of the Tucker Center for Girls and Women in Sport.
9: And so we cannot underestimate that the coach holds a lot of power in a good way. And oftentimes that's used in not a good way when it turns towards emotional, physical, psychological abuse. What we're seeing right now is that the female athletes who have visibility and power and popularity are using their platforms to advocate for themselves. And that is unprecedented disruption in the space. The young women and the veteran women are using their platforms for social change in ways that we have never seen before.
5: In our conversation, Lavoy wasn't referencing any specific report about abuses of power. But in the past two years, The NWSL has provided a terrifying number to choose from. In Washington, D.C.
1: The Washington Spirit soccer team has been suspended by the National Women's Soccer League and their former head coach, Richie Burke, has been fired and banned from working with any other players.
5: In Salt Lake City.
1: Major League Soccer continues to investigate Real Salt Lake and Utah Royals owner Deloy Hansen for improper language and conduct.
5: In New York. Where Gotham FC dismissed manager Elise LaHue after an investigation that revealed violations to the league's anti harassment policy.
9: The commissioner of the National Women's Soccer League has stepped down following allegations of misconduct.
5: The resignation of the NWSL commissioner came in 2021 after the Paul Riley scandal broke. But Riley was hardly the only person in women's soccer alleged to have violated his player's trust. he's not even the only one of Jess's former coaches.
4: Gets the top, a 20th NCAA title. In 1998,
5: the University of North Carolina and several school officials, including Coach Anson Dorrance, were sued by two of his former players. The women played at UNC long before Jess did, and alleged that at the time, Dorrance talked regularly about his players' bodies and sex lives, which amounted to sexual harassment and therefore violated their Title IX rights to an equal education. They sought various remedies, including financial damages of $12 million. Dorrance declined to comment on the allegations when I asked. But many years later, UNC paid more than $450,000 to settle those two cases. As part of the settlement, one of the plaintiffs released a statement saying that, neither Mr. Dorrance nor any member of the coaching staff for the UNC Chapel Hill women's soccer team made a pass at me, or asked for a sexual relationship. Dorrance was enrolled in sensitivity training, and he issued an apology, acknowledging that he, quote, participated with members of the UNC Chapel Hill women's soccer team in group discussions of those team members' sexual activities or relationships with men. He continued, I understand that my participation in those discussions was inappropriate and unacceptable.
9: I talk a lot to those in positions of power in all levels of organized sport. Dr. Lavoie again. And the conversations I have are usually one is to educate and create awareness. Two then is how do you change the culture of your organization to one that values and supports women in a legitimate way, not just lip service, but real cultural change. And that starts at the top. If we don't get change from the top down, real systemic change will never happen. So those are the conversations I end up having and will continue to have, unfortunately, because the change has been slow, uneven, or in some cases, backwards.
5: So what Jess and the general public didn't know in 2016 was that her reconnection with Paul Riley in Western New York came from a dark place. Just a few months earlier, one of those Portland Thorns players interviewed in The Athletic had complained to team management about Riley's behavior. The Thorns recently acknowledged they conducted an internal review at the time and quickly decided not to renew Riley's contract. That's the reason he ended up coaching Jess again. During my early conversation with him for this podcast, Riley obviously didn't mention any of that. He just told us he was excited at the time to have Jess on his team.
11: She has a lot of tools and a lot of pieces to her. She did well in Portland for us, obviously, and then she got traded to Houston. She's never forgiven me for that one. We traded to Houston. Uh, I don't even remember why or how or what it was for, but uh, she ended up going to Houston. And then, obviously, uh, I left and came to Buffalo, uh, to Western New York. And by the time I got there, Jess was already been traded to Western New York. Like, oh, my God. Jess McDonald's on the roster I gotta call Jess because I wonder if she still has something against me for trading her but I called her up and said hey Jess just wanna let you know uh, I took over the jump she goes oh my god I'm so happy and I'm like you know what Jess so am I anytime you you bring a relationship back and I bring a player back I'm like man yeah there's just something there there's a connection and when you have a connection with a player they could be okay for one team but they could be great for you and I've had that connection with obviously a lot of players over my lifetime and I think Jess is definitely one of them for sure
7: Despite everything that happened in Portland, I was still willing to go, you know, be coached under him. And he accepted me more as a mom. He accepted my son was going to be around. Whereas when I was in Portland, I never brought my son around ever because I felt like I was walking on eggshells. You know, I didn't bring him on very many trips that season. Like I just, I couldn't because I didn't feel comfortable doing so. But like Western New York Flash, it was just different. So I give him credit for the impact he has had on my life. I just hate the bad parts. I just lost someone that was important in my life for seven years out of the ten I've been a pro. I was heartbroken for my friends because I played with Sinead and Mana when I was in Portland. I just...
0: Unbelievable! When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com/slash-with-amex.
1: From BBC Radio Four, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my god, we've summoned something from this board.
2: This is uncanny, USA. He says, Somebody's in the house and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
3: My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con The Story of BitCon. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Western New York Flash return to Rochester for a seven-game homestand, and it kicks off tonight. A very special guest at midfield—it's Jill Ellis, head coach of the U.S. Women's National Team—in town, getting ready for the camp later this week. So we're going to look at some of her players
5: by April that 2016 NWSL season was underway. And no matter how that year's club came together in Rochester, they came together for something special.
7: We were just these underdogs, all these young people, and such an incredible year. One of the best years of my career.
5: Jess scored 10 goals that season and recorded seven assists as The Flash became a team of destiny.
10: We were so naive to soccer, I think, and like the success that we were gonna have and the journey we were gonna go on, but We won that year, we had no business winning, but we did. And I think it's because of like the love and the joy of the game.
5: Lynn Williams was Jess's teammate on The Flash and was a star on the rise herself. Thanks in part to Jess's leadership and her assists.
8: Even for Lynn Williams getting the MVP, a lot of credit should be given to Jessica McDonald and just the partnership that they have had up there. Coach Paul Riley said it should be almost a joint one at least between those two just because of the partnership.
10: She had played for Paul in Portland before going to Houston, and she had been bopping around a bit. And she was such a huge part of us winning that year and an integral piece to my development in that year.
5: Together, the duo led the Flash to the NWSL championship game and combined on a goal that may have changed the fate of the franchise and Jess's future.
8: Perhaps a chance for McDonald here, if she can catch up to the ball with
5: Oyster. From just outside the top left corner of the spirit penalty box, Jess saw Williams battling for space near the goal.
8: McDonald to the seconds, winding down. Ball to the far post. Williams. Oh my goodness! It's stoppage time. You've got to be kidding me.
5: The Flash went on to win the championship in a penalty shootout, and in that glow of winning yet another championship in her soccer career, Jess's old dream may not have felt so far out of reach anymore.
2: I mean, Jessica's always been a top goal scorer in the uh, Women's Professional League.
5: Dave Cameron is the men's soccer coach at Phoenix College. He was the one Jess first confided in about wanting to make the U.S. Women's National Team, even as she recovered from her injured knee.
2: She's working below minimum wage playing professional soccer in hopes to make that national team. To watch her go from Seattle Reign, get traded to go to the Thorns, she breaks a scoring record. She's a Golden Boot champion. And she finds out on Twitter she got traded. She's now at Houston Dash, and Houston is hot and miserable and humid. It's not fun. And then she gets traded again, going wherever she had to go. She had to find people to watch her son. I go watch Jessica play when she's playing for Seattle, and we're watching Jeremiah during the game. And she's just like, hey, can you help me? Like, you're playing in like 20 minutes, and she's still struggling to find help because she, doesn't, she can't afford an nanny. she can't do these things.
5: Jess always had rare talent on the soccer field, but at the professional game, so did everyone. With teammate Lynn Williams having just won the league MVP award, you could make a case Jess wasn't even the best forward on her own team, much less a prime candidate to make the national team. And now Jess had a son to care for. All her life, she'd been able to funnel off-the-field adversity into game-time success. But once the season ended in October, the adversity was still there.
7: I was packing boxes at Amazon for a while, which was after the NWSO Championship with Western New York Flash 2016. And I thought I was done playing, to be honest. I had been with the national team. So that was the point of becoming a pro. My goal was to make the USA team. All right, I feel as if I'm too old at this point, And I accepted it because most people when they're in their first camp with the USA team, you're a teenager, early 20s, college,
10: and here I am pushing 30 which is unheard of. I look at Jess and I'm like, she has a son. I know other people in the league have kids and I'm like, how on earth is she gonna support them?
5: Jess's teammate, Lynn Williams.
10: I think I made $10,000 my first year. I think the next year I was like, I need a raise and I got up to $12,000. And at the time, going from 10 to 12, I was like, this is amazing. But looking back, I was like, how on earth did I even survive?
5: But fate had a funny way of intervening that year. In those 2016 Olympics, the U.S. women's national team had been stunned by Sweden in a quarterfinal loss, marking the first ever time that the U.S. women did not medal at the games. Following that loss, U.S. national team head coach Jill Ellis brought a collection of new faces to the team's year-end training camp. Those camps last about a week and offer U.S. team coaches a chance to evaluate new players, we were effectively on a two-year-long tryout to make the next World Cup roster. In late 2016, those new players at camp included Lynn Williams. And then at the last minute...
7: I get a text from Jill Ellis. Like, hey, like, I want to invite you into camp.
5: Western New York's other star forward.
7: And I was like, holy crap. My first national team camp. And I was 28 years old at the time. Oh my gosh, like, finally! You know what I mean? I've been waiting so long for this opportunity.
5: On November 10, 2016, Jess McDonald made her debut for the U.S. women's national team, coming on at halftime in a friendly against Romania. Jess played 45 minutes of that match and took one shot on goal, a header that was stopped by the keeper. But Jess's relentlessness impressed Ellis, the same way it had impressed her youth coaches, then her college coaches, then her professional coaches.
4: This is an evaluation camp, and,
7: and our players have been on a bit of a break.
5: Jo Ellis spoke with reporters in early 2017 about the new players getting a look from her coaching staff.
7: The balance for us is we want to test ourselves in, in some of the things that we've been working on. And uh,
8: yeah, some of these players, you've got to see them against the top teams. So it's
9: it's a two-year journey at this point.
5: Jess was invited back to national team training camps in early 2017, but didn't log any playing time in U.S. matches that spring. She'd made a good impression on the coaches, clearly. But that didn't guarantee her a future with the team. And privately, even her biggest fans understood what a long shot that was.
2: To be on the national team, on the women's side, that's a big ticket.
5: Dave Cameron again.
2: That was kind of a secret of hers. Because, like, if you have some crazy goal, and that, to be honest, that's a crazy goal, a lot of people would make fun of her. I don't even know how to explain it. Like, no one believed it and
5: on part seven of Payback.
2: Society
10: has made people feel like being vulnerable about being a mom is bad when it shouldn't be that way at all.
5: We
8: need to know our history. Who we come from, where we come from, where we've been, and where we want to go.
10: I went up to Paul and I was like,
7: what do you think my chances are? And he was like, Jess, I just, I don't see it happening.
1: Ahead for McDonald, North Carolina in the 92nd minute.
7: I get a text from Jill Ellis right after the game. I might be going into camp.
5: I'm Alex Andreyev. Payback is a production of the Charlotte Observer, Raleigh News and Observer, McClatchy Studios, and iHeartRadio. It's produced by Kata Stevens, Casey Toth, Julia Wall, and Davin Coburn. The executive producer for iHeartRadio is Sean Titone. For lots more on this story, and to support journalism like this, visit charlotteobserver.com payback or newsobserver.com payback. And for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh my, look at that, he is... This
2: is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever
3: you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of BitCon, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Every family has an origin story, one passed down through the generations.